Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss uh, what to expect in the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us, as always. Always a pleasure to be here, Vago. Uh, indeed. Uh, pleasure is all ours. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage. Overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. And Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium. Uh, Byron, it is a magical time of the year. Flowers are blooming and the J books are finally out. Uh, you uh, assessed uh, the U.S. Army's budget details uh, on Friday, the 22nd, uh, and over the weekend took a crack at the Air Force uh, and the Navy. First, let's keep, recap the audience on the Army details. What jumped out at you, uh, aside from some of the headline uh, decisions, obviously, that came uh, with the administration's budget request, right? I mean, the Army shrinking. Indeed, each of the military services, with the exception of the Space Force, uh, are shrinking. And the Space Force ad is a little disingenuous because it's the space development agency moving obviously into that service but sort of give us your sense on what sort of the key takeaways from your standpoint were uh, in looking at the army j books well i have to say a couple of things first fogger you know these are thousands of pages long and it's always tempting to and i i do this i mean obviously you kind of cherry pick uh the programs that may matter um to individual contractors and so it's not a complete look because, for example, there are a lot of things on the striker program uh, that's important for general dynamics and are funded out of operations and maintenance. Um, I don't really think there were major surprises uh, in the Army J books. Um, you know, the <clears throat> mobile protected firepower had had a pretty good uh, program growth profile. You know, James had reported back in March that BA systems had been eliminated from that competition. So that may all be general dynamics. Um, <clears throat> FARA and FLARA continue to, to be well supported in the budget plans. <clears throat> but I think there was also a bit of a highlight that the um, some of the more mature Army aviation programs are winding down. We knew that, but it's it's confirmed with the budget, although the Boeing the, the news over the weekend that Germany had selected the Chinook uh, for their heavy lift helicopter uh, requirement was kind of an intriguing development because that also, that really makes Boeing a very longer term viable rotary ring participant with, with uh, you know, a 60 helicopter buy coming out of that. Um, so there, there were minor changes, but I wouldn't say anything that was like earth shattering. Uh, and I was really focusing on um, some of the bigger programs. I did not get in the weeds on like Army hypersonics and some of the advanced weapons that uh, that they're developing, the strike platforms, for example. Um, what, uh, you know, one of the points you made uh, in one of your notes is that it is a little bit too early to be uh, drawing some lessons. Why, why do you say that? Because there are some who say, and certainly U.S. Army leaders, for example, point out, you know, you have to do a rigorous study before you start drawing conclusions, right? I mean, the Russian, there are a whole bunch of things the Russians are just doing badly, right? So no, not necessary to be drawing sweeping conclusions about the future of the tank or army uh, aviation or, or what have you. And, and indeed, right, I mean, the United States Army would fight 
fundamentally differently. It would have logistics. Uh, it would use infantry to support armor, uh, just as it wouldn't use attack helicopters in the way the Russians are using them. But from your standpoint, why why is it potentially problematic to be drawing some of these conclusions? Because I think pretty much everybody is trying to draw lessons from from what we're seeing. Well, well, first thing, there's just a lot we don't know. I mean, sorry, you, you really can't draw a lot of conclusions from open source imagery um, that's been posted online. There's some people who do a pretty good job about tabulating losses, but um, you know, what does that really tell you? There's also a lot we just don't know. Uh, I think you know, it'll take months probably to see what was really going on behind the scenes <clears throat> with uh, cyber, uh, cyber warfare. Um, I think even electronic warfare in you know, how well or how not well Russian air defense systems have been performing is going to be another interesting phenomenon to watch. And, and you know, it got back to, it was more a reflection than a conclusion, um, you know, but, but one of the surprises has been, you know, we just, we, the West, because I, I hadn't seen any real strong uh, counter arguments come out of European governments, you know, that the Russian training support logistics, you know, it just wasn't up to snuff. And um, it, it's a reminder that, you know, as much as we focus on counting things, we have pretty superb <clears throat> overhead assets, um, airborne and space that, that can count things, you know, when you really get into the culture of an organization or what's really going on with, with how people are trained and how they're motivated and how they're led, <clears throat> this is arguably, you know, the third shortfall that we've seen in recent years. The, the, go back to 2014 and how quickly <clears throat> ISIS had initially knocked down Iraqi forces. That, that was an intelligence failure of sorts. Um, and then the, how swiftly the Afghan security forces collapsed in August of 2021 was another failure. And so I, I think you ought to step back and just say, we, we ought to be spending a little bit more time, maybe we are, uh, but getting to the human element of this, that, that you, and I, I have to believe the data is out there. Someone knew, people know, you know, What's the state of Russian kit? You know, what, what's the, um, what, how are Russian infantry personnel or armored personnel or artillery personnel trained? You know, what are the shortfalls? How do they really do this? And I posted, it was a tweet by a guy out of Taiwan who talked about his uh, reserve training and how lackluster that was. So it's just something that, you know, leaping to conclusions, let's, check a lot of boxes here first. Um, and anybody uh, knows you knows you're a, a first order uh, analyst, right? I mean, give me the data, give me uh, the information as opposed to just making, you know, sort of, um, you know, guesswork uh, on it. Um, you were on the Cavus Ships podcast, our colleague, uh, Chris Cavus, uh, and contributing editor and our producer, Chris Cervello, each week host uh, a deep dive uh, to clear the fog on naval and maritime uh, matters. And you were discussing uh, the Navy's 30-year uh, shipbuilding plan. Um, I want to ask you about the Navy budget in a minute, but give us give us sort of a, a, a brief version of that comment. And I commend the audience to check out that program uh, because it's a great weekly uh, show and your, your comments were very thoughtful. But give us sort of the short form on you know what you sort of liked, what you didn't like, 
uh, about the 30-year shipbuilding plan because this is something that the Navy has been beaten up over and the Office of the Secretary of Defense has in fact taken that uh, into itself to try to produce on an annual basis yeah. in part um, you know, lo- losing trust in the Navy being able to do this, and frankly, nobody was happy when the Navy did it anyway. So, you know, what 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 do you what do you think are the takeaways? Well, first, I got a terrific amount of respect for both Chris's, and that you know, it, it was a very interesting and lively discussion. I at times, you know, wanted to listen more to what they said than than my views. But the the point that I think is interesting on this is it becomes the reference document for what's the future size of the Navy. And, you know, arguably there was an attempt in this 30 year shipbuilding plan to to try and frame this more about different capacities, like how many VLS tubes or torpedo tubes or how many sorties could you generate? There was some interesting data in the the 30 year plan on that, that just got us away from how many ship hulls do you need? Because, you know, I, I kind of cringe every time I hear the argument that, oh, China's got a bigger Navy than the United States. Well, yeah, they do, because they've got a larger number of, of much smaller ships, cor- Corvette-sized ships that are like 1,300 tons. So it's an apples to oranges comparison. And, you know, you'd have to, the, the central question, you know, when these kind of debates come up is, well, whose neighbor would you rather fight with? Um, and I, I think I know the answer most people would offer. Um, I thought the the... <clears throat> There was an attempt to use alternative funding scenarios, but it really wasn't that illuminating um, because the dollar amounts weren't really discussed. Um, And I suppose, you know, from the broader scheme of thinking about how a Navy is used, uh, you know, there was a comment that, well, we've really kind of looked at, at, you know, the pacing threat, which is code for China. But come on, you know, the Navy's got missions around the world and there are contingencies that could be stressing or stressful uh, in the Black Sea, in the Baltic, in in the Med um, and, and Red Sea, you know, in the Gulf, the Arabian Gulf. So it, it's a little incomplete from that standpoint. And I, I think it's almost maybe you need, here's our blue sky, best case. Here's, here's a that it's ever going to happen but here's the appendix with what the navy thinks it needs but then you know throwing what the army and the air force think they need too um you know if you're really going to play that out but i don't know i i just i get it it's a helpful document it's unfortunate to me that it becomes the fulcrum for the debate about the future size of the navy because i think the debate is much bigger than how many ships do we have or need. um uh agreed um and I want to get into some of the strategic rationale sort of more broadly, but want to get to the Navy budget uh, next. Uh, when you look through the J books, right, I mean, each of the services shrank, um, which, uh, you know, some people are focused on, especially at a time when uh, we, we may be dealing with two uh, contingencies, right? I mean, the Russians, uh, despite the fact that they're messing this up, does not automatically mean the next one will be messed up, although they are burning through a lot of capability. But it's a big country. It's 140 million people. They can always uh, draft more people and they can produce uh, hardware. Uh, and, and obviously, one of the messages Putin is sending is, I don't care how many people die right? You may be worried about that. I'm not worried about it, um, which uh, clearly from his actions, he doesn't care how many casualties he uh, incurs. What, what were some of the things that you saw in the J-Books regarding the Navy budget that you thought were, were interesting, curious, good, bad, ugly, 
what have you. Well, again, this is this is a process. So, you know, the, the note over the weekend really looked at aircraft programs. Um, you know, the F-35 cut was interesting. We kind of knew what the FY23 requests would show, but <clears throat> FY24 was, was kind of the same level. And then you start to see a ramp um, to a lower number than was in the FY21 POM uh, through 25. There wasn't one in FY22 because of the transition in administration. So that was kind of interesting. Um, you know, the Navy context, I the, there were numbers for the B-21 bomber, just procurement budget numbers, uh, NRDT and E numbers, but no quantity. Um, you know, Steve Trimble over at Aviation Week had estimated, this is back in late March, that some of these unit prices for the initial couple of uh, B-21 bombers are going to be like $1.5, $1.6 billion. I mean, that's the price of a destroyer. And uh, you just kind of sit back and go, okay, you know, are we really going to get to a $660 million or whatever it is, flyaway costs for the B-21 over 100 aircraft? I don't know. But those, those initial procurement numbers, if the quantities are correct, are really kind of stunningly large. And... Um, you know, you just kind of wonder, is that an issue that's going to come up with this program to the same degree the pricing has been an issue for F-35 and a lot of other programs? So um, kind of watch the space. The other, the other part, you know, it's clear from the budget justification books that there are a lot of legacy programs that are kind of coming to their end. Uh, P-8, you know, yeah, there's some international sales, but, you know, the last last funding year was FY22 or FY21. Um, there's no more money for the F-18. Uh, the F-15EX, while there might be a follow-on buy, you know, I think the current, the current buy goes through, uh, there, there's money for FY24 and a 72 aircraft requirement, you know, but, but nothing in the, in the program after that. Um, E8, uh, Hawkeye, you know, that'll be winding down too. So it's a very interesting transition that's coming up here. And, you know, Chris made this comment on his podcast, Chris Cavus, about, you know, some of the really crazy cuts that the Navy had made uh, for the, for example, the large unmanned undersea uh, drone, uh, Snakehead is the name of the program. And there was a line item you know, that only funds these autonomous uh, systems that the Air Force is looking at under the former Skyboard program, you know, that only gets funded for, for a year and then there's no funding afterwards. So maybe there's stuff we don't know about classified uh, programs that these will get folded into, but there there's some missing pieces that I think are, have got to be in people's minds as well too. And, uh, you know, what does it mean for the out years and What's the rationale for some of the cuts that have been made? Hopefully these will come up in some of the oversight hearings uh, that start in earnest this week. Um, I would uh, point out, right, I mean, the F-35's costs have diminished uh, rather dramatically, right? I mean, so the, you know, we were looking at a, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars per airplane, then it was 200 something, then it was, um, you know, down to the 110, whatever. And it does look like we're going to eat our way down. So when, you know, and I have enormous respect for Steve uh, as as a reporter uh, and as an individual and, and, and colleague in this business. Uh, but, you know, part of the dynamic is, right, whether you can get down on that cost curve, and it does look uh, increasingly uh, likely, and you hear this suggested by folks that actually the B-21 buy uh, 
may ultimately be increased because um, folks recognize uh, the importance of the program. I mean, I think what's fascinating about B21 is we made a fundamental series of trade-offs that the bomber community was uncomfortable with. They wanted a bigger airplane, not a smaller airplane. And we ended up getting uh, an airplane that's a little bit smaller uh, in order to be able to hit that $500 million cost target um, that uh, was uh, important at the time the program was launched by uh, Ash Carter uh, when, when he set it up again. We, we also had similar financial constraints uh, for the ballistic missile submarine and made a certain series of trade-offs, reducing the number of missile tubes, for example, less ice hardening, um, and, and a couple of other decisions that were made uh, in order to be able to control uh, control the cost of the program. And any any other thoughts on the on the Air Force? Because I do want to ask you a kind of a broader strategy question and a couple of Ukraine questions, and then we do have to take a look at the week ahead as well. No, I mean, I, I think, look, this is economics 101, at least with the F-35 program. You're right. The, the unit flyaway costs have come down. But if you compare the FY21 POM to the unit prices that were projected for uh, particularly FY24 and FY25, you know, it was around $87 million a copy for the F-35A, the new Palm, 93 million, and then it jumps to $97 million a, a unit. So, you know, you cut quantity, usually your price goes up. And um, that's the trade that clearly DOD felt it need to make. Uh, is it the right trade? You know, that's that's got to get aired out in, in these oversight hearings. The administration is free to request Congress as the one who decides this. Um, there is a concern that some folks have in looking at this budget and saying, look, this is the embodiment of a bunch of very smart people who've always made the argument to make better choices and that um, that de- defense is a finite resource and it's not cost is no object, right? And so we do have to make trade-offs. We may be losing a thousand missile tubes and retiring the cruisers, but the cruisers are expensive and it's actually better to get to a new generation uh, of platform. We don't need as much presence. We can get rid of the freedom class littoral combat ships uh, because we're going to be building frigates. But, but you and I are both sailors, and sailors are like mountain climbers, always have a new handhold before you let go of the one you have. And the criticism of the administration is, you're looking at a new generation of amphibious warship. These things take a decade, if not more, to develop. So you're gapping significantly and may message uh, to our adversaries, um, maybe sending problematic messages. If you're worried about war 2027 being a consequential year for Taiwan, don't ensure the United States Navy is at its smallest point of 280 ships by 2017, for example. Um, I, should, I should note for our audience, right? I mean, this month is the 40th anniversary of the Falkland Islands War. This, this month, last month, <laughs> next month and into June. And, you know, there are uh, those who make uh, the compelling case that, look, had uh, the Thatcher government not decided to shrink the Navy and not retire HMS Endurance, the guard ship for the region, uh, the war could have been avoided. Uh, ultimately, right, it's things like that that send messages to people uh, and you end up with a shooting war. So deterrence is, is more important. Is the administration making some fundamentally erroneous? I, I should also point out today is uh, uh, April 25, uh, which was the retaking of South Georgia by British uh, forces uh, that included HMS Endurance. Do do. Do, do they have the right approach, Byron, ultimately? Or, or are they leaving too much to risk and chance um, that in terms well, of retiring existing capability for the promise of capability that's not, it's, I mean, even the, the, even the new frigate's not going to be around for another Yeah, but I mean, it's not, it's not like, you know, I, 
on the Ticonderoga class, for example, you know, it was interesting as the, the J-Box showed Ticonderoga class, there really wasn't a sharp drop-off in VLS tubes in, in the surface warfare uh, part of the fleet. Um, the, the big drop-off comes from getting rid of the Trident boats that have been converted to as missile launchers. That, that was kind of an interesting aha moment for me. Um, I suppose, you know, one thing this war hasn't resolved uh, is legacy versus next generation equipment. Um, you know, the Moskva may be a good case of why you don't want <clears throat> older ships um, in harm's way. Uh, if now, again, I don't know the full story in there, but, <clears throat> you know, are these ships, are, are they worth <clears throat> sending in harm's way? And there's another subtext to all this vodka, which is it just takes too bloody long to build some of this stuff. Um, you know, to your point, you know, even last year, I mean, the Congress adds money to the FY22 budget for shipbuilding because of the, the threat that China could take Taiwan in 2025, uh, 2026. But then the, the money that they add is for ships that are gonna be delivered in, in you know, 2027 or 2028 outside the window in which you're supposed to be deterring something. So it's a much deeper problem. Um, it really gets down to alacrity uh, and speed. And you know, we're still buying things over glacial time horizons that uh, to your point, yeah, you needed it yesterday. Uh, I think it's fascinating to see, you know, <clears throat> kind of the way the U.S. is is positioning with Ukraine and the kit that we're trying to get them. That's a mix of legacy equipment, but then some stuff that's being developed very quickly. And <clears throat> that should be a template for how we think about this more holistically. Um, you know, if deterrence failed in, in Ukraine and Russia, um, you know, we better be thinking a lot harder about how you prevent that from failing in Taiwan. And my personal view, I don't think, you know, keeping older Ticonderoga, older cruisers around or older surface combatants around is going to deter Taiwan. That's going to deter. I don't think that keeping older surface combatants around is necessarily going to deter China. Um, you've got to do stuff and show things that that make them think twice about, you know, can we really do this? Uh, and if we can't, uh, you know, that's really where you want to have them. And that, to, but to me, that's not that's not kind of going to come around from keeping older cruisers and littoral combat ships in the fleet. It's it's probably going to be something else in a much shorter time period that you've got to feel the capability next year, the year after, you know, not 28 or 29. Uh, well, I mean, uh, agreed, right? I mean, I, I guess we're sort of saying the, the same thing. Yeah. I'm perfectly happy with them retiring capability. For example, those cruisers are based on Spruance hulls, uh, not the most robust of ships. We laden them with hundreds of tons of radar. Uh, it's driving a heavier ship. It's top heavy. There are a whole bunch of challenges with them. So they're uh, challenging from a maintenance standpoint. We understand that. But that works only if you can get that replacement into service quickly. We bought a non-developmental frigate, I would point out, and I've turned it into a developmental item that is delaying the program effectively. That's part of the problem. Uh, uh, it's really part of the problem. And so what's interesting is when you see <clears throat> Germany, for example, you know, make these decisions on Chinook helicopters, on F-35 aircraft, where they need it 
now or sooner than you know germany doesn't have the the budget the probably frankly the industrial base i mean what was the last european heavy lift helicopter program the super freilon if that's how we call it yeah super Super freilon the super freilon so you know if you don't have the industrial capacity to do this you're going to be buying it from someone else and um you know that may be another solution here uh if if you know push really comes to shove uh very quickly a lot more aid uh flowing into ukraine over the weekend uh sash made a great point right i mean towed artillery is not the biggest fan of it but certainly the caesar is an incredible capability and a lot of uh, equipment is flowing there and the united states air force uh accelerated um the development of and production of uh the phoenix ghost by uh avex uh aerospace um, give, give us your sense on whether or not, A, the AVEX uh, issue and the Phoenix Ghost uh, marks sort of a turning point uh, at all, and what broader sort of war replenishment takeaways uh, that, that you've got, right? I mean, Saab had an interesting press conference. There's this sense that this tide is going to rise all, raise all boats rather rapidly, and that might not necessarily be the case. Sort of your, your, your sense on that before we end it with a, a quick tour about what the audience should be tuning into for the week. Um, look, I agree. You know, you really have to do the tally of, you know, I looked at military balance. I think uh, Ukraine had over 1,100 towed artillery pieces um, prior to the start of the war. How much they lost, um, you know, what, what's still effective, I don't know. I suppose from a simple expediency of just getting something to the field that, uh, you know, how well is Russian counter-battery fire has been, you know, the, their air force normally towed artillery, I'd wear a hell of a lot in, in an environment where the other guy has air supremacy, he doesn't. Uh, and so <clears throat> something's better than nothing in this environment. And it's also, it's available. I mean, it's, it's not going to detract from uh, U.S. or, or European uh, military ready. And so although I believe the French, uh, the, the system that they're coming is coming out of French military stocks. That's not an older piece of kit that was uh, retired or placed in storage. What does this mean? I mean, it kind of goes back to our conversation earlier, Vago, about um, the Phoenix program. You know, look, if you, if you can develop stuff quickly and, and get it fielded, um, that's, that's the mindset you have to bring to this. You know, when, when people hold up the MRAP program as a, an example of how fast the Department of Defense m- moved, <clears throat> that's not exactly the best example. Uh, and I think Austin's kind of on this. Uh, Secretary of Defense Austin is, is correctly on this point that we need to think creatively about what else we can get to Ukraine this year, <clears throat> you know, not in 2025 or 2027 or 2029. Uh, so it's going to be a challenge for industry. It's probably going to create some new opportunity, which is good. Because um, I think, you know, if industry can demonstrate an ability to meet these sorts of urgent demands, um, <clears throat> the DOD and frankly, other militaries ought to be taking notice as well too. 
And uh, very quickly, uh, what should the audience be uh, paying attention to uh, this week? We're going to have uh, a couple of hearings, uh, some key think tank events. Uh, CEO of Lockheed Martin is going to be talking to the Atlantic Council. So to give us uh, kind of a, a walkthrough of what the most important events of the week are from well, your standpoint. Yeah, the, that House and Senate Armed Services Oversight Committee hearings on the, uh, I guess it's really the Air Force budget is kind of front and center this week. On Tuesday, there's a House Armed Services uh, hearing on the Navy Marine Corps investment program. That's going to be kind of interesting given uh, the criticism that was aired in the Washington Post, among other journals, about <clears throat> General Berger's vision for what the future Marine Corps would be configured as. Um, <clears throat> and oh, there's an in defense industrial base hearing that's kind of interesting because it, it includes David Berteau. Um, <clears throat> this is a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing. David is uh, CEO of the Professional Services Council. And I just think it's good because we tend to think of the defense industrial base in terms of equipment, <clears throat> um, things, uh, when it really matters is people too. And the services sector is a critical element in the defense industrial base. I'm just glad that uh, he's going to get a chance to, to make that case before the Senate Armed Services Committee. And uh, what do you uh, hope uh, to hear from Jim uh, Takelet at the uh, Atlantic Council on Thursday, I think, right? Uh, honestly, I hope he talks less about his major platform programs, the F-35, the F-16 hypersonic weapons, uh, long-range strike, and he talks a lot more about, you know, what's this architecture, this future image uh, that he has uh, for how Lockheed is going to be a differentiated defense contractor. Um, it was really absent in a lot of ways from their last conference call, and uh, it's just something, they're kind of two different messages that are coming out of the company, um, and, and I think, you know, to the extent that he can really clarify what's this vision, so people just aren't counting uh, F-35s, as I did earlier in the call. <laughs> well, uh, alas, right? Being on Wall Street is counting uh, the number of F-35s, uh, ultimately, uh, right? Unfortunately, that's what it, it gets uh, reduced to. And that's on the 29th, which I think is on uh, Thursday. Byron, Friday. thanks so very much. Friday, Friday, excuse me. Friday the 29th. Yep. Friday the 29th. Uh, Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Have a great week uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.